Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. There are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton. Welcome to this week's episode of Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. I'm your host, Ian Fisher, and we're here on the other side of November 1, where the days are getting shorter, the leaves are beginning to drop, and here in Portland, you can see your breath in the air on those crisp morning walks to school. For many of your seniors, um, some of your applications are already in. Maybe even all of them have been submitted. That would be great. And so you're starting to look ahead to the end of high school and the start of the next new adventure. Our show today is focused on what comes next in a variety of different flavors. We're going to talk about the student loan grace period and how to begin the process of repaying your student loans. We'll also unpack the meaning of a deferred decision, just in case any of you meet one of those in the coming months. But first, we're going to spend some time talking about an alternative route to your freshman year of college, the gap year. Joining me this morning is the founder and CEO of Global Citizen Year, Abby Fallick. Hey, Abby, welcome to the show. Good morning, Ian. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really glad to have you here. We had a a really great conversation uh, last week on Thursday. I'm excited to learn a little bit more uh, and help our listeners learn a little bit more about your organization. But I'd like to start just sort of with this concept of a gap year, because I think it's something that is getting a little bit more attention from families these days. And I wonder if you could introduce us to the gap year and and talk about um, some of the benefits that you perceive for students who have a gap before they start college. Terrific. Well, thank you. I I have made it my life's work to normalize this as the new and better path between high school and college for young people. And it's very exciting to see growing interest and comfort um, and, and enthusiasm around the opportunity of taking this year to complement what can be learned in a classroom setting. And I often start by uh, sort of challenging the, the terminology that we use around a gap year. I think that's part of mm. what's made this um, concept take longer than it's needed to to take off. And so if you think about a gap as a metaphor, it's exactly the opposite of what this year has the potential to be. So when it's done by, by uh, deliberately and not by default, sort of as your plan A and not your plan B, Taking this year and and having some kind of meaningful, formative, personal experience, it's not the absence of something, it's it's the presence of potentially the most important learning one could have. Um, So so it starts by really challenging the, the concept, this isn't a gap between two stages of life. This can be the launch pad that prepares young people to arrive in college purposeful, focused enthusiastic, clear on the questions that they're trying to answer with their higher education, and really prepared to make college count. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely right. And, and I just anecdotally, the friends that I had in college who had done a gap year felt like they were so much more present and so much more ready to tackle the challenges that came with undergraduate education. I think in part because they had taken that time to really focus on something away from schooling uh, or at least tangentially connected to schooling before they came back for their formal education. How can students sort of conceive of whether a gap year is going to be the right fit for them? Is that something that you would say is right for everyone? Or is there a particular kind of student that is well-suited to this opportunity? So 
I'm of the belief, now having worked with more than a 1,000 young people who participate in Global Citizen Year, that taking this year in a deliberate, intentional way is good for everyone or for ev- for anyone who is interested in learning more about themselves and developing a sense of purpose and being prepared to arrive in college from day one with a set of burning questions. I'd be hard-pressed to say that that's not a good option. Um, right. So for for. Students who, who who are about to, or and families who are going to make the investment in a higher education. You know, in our experience, that where you go to college ultimately will matter much less than how you approach the experience and the opportunity to give a student um, an experience outside of the classroom, ideally outside of their t- comfort zone, in a way that really challenges them and and gives them a fresh perspective on who they are and who they hope to become is, in my view, the best way to improve the, the return on the college investment. Yeah. And, and so let's say I'm a student who's interested in that. And conceptually, I think it sounds really appealing. Um, I think a lot of students might be excited by an opportunity, but they don't quite know where to look. You know, when it comes to college admission, it's something that every student is is engaging in or in some form or another. They have counselors who are equipped to help them with their application process to prepare materials. For the gap year, I think the information is a little bit harder to find. It's it's harder to know where to start, what to look for, how you evaluate a good program. Mm -hmm. Where can students sort of begin to say, you know, these are what gap year opportunities kind of look like, um, and this is how I might compare one against another? It's a great question. And the first place I would send parents is actually to the colleges that your students are applying for. So a growing number of colleges have mm. now become quite explicit about uh, their, their, their stance on gap years and their encouragement that more students consider doing this. We're working with more than a dozen colleges at this point, from Duke and UNC to Middlebury, Colby, Tufts, to develop a a framework for what constitutes a really meaningful and transformative gap year. And for us, it needs to be something that takes you from your comfort zone, that connects you to a purpose beyond yourself, that immerses you in a, a new environment with peers who may be from different backgrounds, and that has some kind of cycle of experiential learning and reflection. So it's not just the experience, but you're actually actively digesting what you're learning in a way that helps you make sense of it. And so in working with these colleges around a framework, we then have created a a number of resources um, that can help direct you to specific programs or opportunities. There's also a a group called the Gap Year Association that has vetted a number of uh, formal programs, and and you can search through their database for, for opportunities there as well. Now, when we talk about the Gap Year on the counseling side, we typically tell students that it's best to apply to college first, and then once they've been admitted to ask for a deferral of their admission for a year so that they can go take advantage of a gap year program. Um, Is that something that within your program with Global Citizen Year that you see is pretty common? Uh, Do you find that students have a, a balance of students who are applying now versus applying a year from now at the end of the program? What sort of are you observing out there in the field? So in our experience, it's it's a mix. And Global Citizen Year, which is a selective leadership program for future change makers from all backgrounds, um, is increasingly valued by the colleges that we've worked with directly in a way that can actually make it a benefit to include in your application that you've been admitted to take a Global Citizen Year. So the, the majority of our fellows, we call them, have already applied 
been admitted and asked for the deferral, which in our experience, virtually every college is delighted to grant because yes. if they're excited about you this year, they'll be even more excited about you a year later after you come back having had a, a really enriching and formative um, experience. We do see each year that about a third of our fellows end up reapplying to college or in some cases applying for the first time and and we support them through that process. And not surprisingly, they end up getting into schools that they might not have gotten into the first time. Um, And they often are finding that they get more financial aid and, and awards thrown their way just because they're such attractive candidates. So you described Global Citizen Year as an enriching, informative year. And I think, you know, you can get those with some other gap year programs, but there are some really special characteristics for Global Citizen Year in particular. And I I would imagine that many of our listeners are unfamiliar with your organization. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about what students get through this program and, and what sort of the benefits of that experience look like. Global Citizen Year is a not-for-profit, and we're using the power of a deep global immersion between high school and college to unlock what we call the three C's, curiosity, conviction, and courage in our next generation of leaders. And how it works is that each year we're recruiting and selecting a diverse cohort of exceptional high school graduates from across the country and around the world, and we're investing in promising young people who reflect our society's diversity so that we can use this formative transition between high school and college to ignite purposeful leadership. And for the equivalent of an academic year, our fellows, as we call them, live with a family in a community in Asia, Africa, or Latin America, and they work as an apprentice to a local effort that might be in education, health, sustainability. And the model for us puts experiential learning at the core and wraps curriculum and coaching around that real-world experience. And that blended experiential learning with reflection and coaching helps prepare young people in ways that classroom learning can't necessarily. And by staying longer and going deeper, our fellows develop insights and skills. They learn to speak a new language, to walk in others' shoes. And these experiences ignite a sense of purpose that helps them focus on the questions they want to use their higher education to help them answer. Ultimately, for us, we see leadership as a practice and not a position. And so the experience Mm. is designed to help reinforce a set of practices that you will carry not just into college, but into whatever you pursue beyond that. And it's practicing curiosity before judgment. It's connecting across lines of difference to build empathy. It's being committed to advancing equity and opportunity for all and to having the courage to do the hard things, even uh, even when they're not easy. And, and so it's really about a leadership training that rewires who you are and, and who you hope to become. Leadership training, I think, is really, really interesting. It's something that um, was a part of my graduate school experience. And I think what's interesting about leadership training is that it is, it, it takes on different shapes and sizes. I think when we think about sort of a college education, we know what it means to go to class, do the homework, write the papers. We have a pretty good sense of what the requirements are there. What is sort of the curriculum of Global Citizen Year? What are the the assignments? What are the the deadlines? You know, mm. are there things that students are actually um, creating as deliverables, or is it something that has a more emergent value at the end of the program? 
That's such a great question. So the heart is it's sort of an independent experiential learning, but it's scaffolded in a very intensive and deliberate training design with clear learning objectives at each stage of the way. So our fellows defer their admission, and then they, they come to us for what we call launch week, uh, which brings our fellows together for a week of a very intensive training that kicks off the year that we host at Stanford University uh, at the beginning of the fall each year. And so that's where we, we introduce them to inspiring leaders across all sectors. We see the number of questions that they will then carry over the course of their year that have to do with exploring who they are when they're outside their comfort zone, what gets them up in the morning when there's no alarm clock, what their values and priorities are in their lives, and simultaneously helps see a set of questions for understanding how the world works. What are some of the needs that they're observing in the communities where they're living? We place them with the global majority around the world. So these are often going to be communities that are uh, um, sort of have fewer resources and opportunities than, than mm-hmm. where our fellows may have come from. But we're really trying to dispel a lot of myths about poverty and development by allowing our fellows to immerse themselves and, and really become a part of a local family and community and project. And the language we use around the apprenticeship is, is very deliberate as well, where they're not there to be volunteers or to implement some kind of service project, um, which we know quite well can often do more harm than good. The emphasis is very clearly on you are here to be humbled to step back, to listen, to learn, to take the time it takes to understand what this community's priorities and needs might be and how, over the course of your eight months here, you might find a way to do something that's a, a meaningful contribution. So the final, the final component is a local community project that they propose. They can apply for some added resources to implement, and it's something that they do leave behind that was a direct expression of what they understood that the community needed and, and an integration of, of what they felt they could do that might be meaningful. So it could be setting up a recycling program at an elementary school or a, a computer lab in a in a medical clinic. I love the sort of description of this as immersive because I think that, you know, the two parallel experiences that I kind of think about um, are either a two-week service trip, like like one that you alluded to that students go on when they're in high school, which is just a sh- such a short period of time that it's very hard to sort of become immersed in the country and community that you're visiting. And then I think also study abroad, which students do when they're in college, mm-hmm. I think is a little bit harder for students to throw themselves into that experience because they're still connected to their home institution in many ways. There's something about the gap year where you're sort of completely untethered to high school, untethered to a college just yet, where you really can throw yourself into the experience. And I think that that's very unique and unusual. Um, I I wanted to ask a a question about community, um, because obviously there are communities that are being developed in these host countries with host families. What about community between students? Do you find that there is sort of a Mm. long lasting benefit to the relationships that these students form at the launch and then and then when they return back to the US in many ways that's actually the heart of the experience is the community of of fellows 
um, we're unique in that we have a need-blind admissions process, so we are access- the only program that's accessible to kids who wouldn't otherwise have the financial means in order to participate. Um, and we're able to do that by raising a, a scholarship fund from generous supporters each year. This year, we've given away $3 million in, in financial aid, which we're incredibly proud of. But yeah. what this means is we're, we're connecting kids who are all high achievers, but from a really broad set of backgrounds. And mm-hmm. the bonds that are created through the, the way that we've structured the, the 10-month leadership cycle from when they're together at Stanford through their, their community placements in the countries where we currently operate, Senegal, Ecuador, India, and Brazil, um, through to coming back through California where they do a week of a reentry program. Again, it brings the whole cohort together from across their country settings. All of that is designed to build a foundational network that becomes a network for life. This we have now seen, and, and we're almost 10 years old organizationally, we've got a 1,000 alumni, and they come back to this network time and again for advice, for connections as a, a, a sort of support group in, in their leadership journeys. The broad vision is that we're creating a network of global change makers that is a, almost a meta network beyond your high school crew or your college alumni group. Uh, but this becomes your go-to in creating the change you believe the world needs. I, I love that sort of concept because, you know, when I was in college, and I think a lot of college campuses, especially smaller communities, describe their campuses as being something like a bubble where you mm-hmm. interact only with people within that bubble, whether it's faculty or students. And so there's a lot of navel gazing that happens where your, mm-hmm. your problems are the problems of your peers within your school. And just having that relationship with others from this program or from any kind of gap year program that are extend beyond that bubble, it really are helpful in, in bursting it, um, you know, in allowing you to maintain those connections that can define the full scope of your education as opposed to just what your paper is about that that's due on, on Friday. Um, and so I think that there's something really wonderful about that orientation that's happening to students in Global Citizen Year and other gap year programs where they really have an opportunity to look beyond the narrow sort of set of parameters of their particular college education. Um, that's that's I, beautifully said. And I, yeah, go ahead. No, no, please, please. Well, I just, I think one of the keys for, for parents and students as they're considering the opportunity is really take this moment to find a way to leave your comfort zone. There are a lot of travel programs where there's an opportunity to be with other, you know, kids like yourself. Um, but, but what you're describing is opportunity to share a, a crucible experience. It's such a formative life moment. I mean, the, the transition between high school and college is, is the only moment really developmentally where you're mature enough to leave home, but you haven't yet fixed your worldview, your sense of identity, your values, your sense of purpose. And there are cultures and countries around the world that have fixated on this life stage as a moment that can be a rite of passage. But somehow culturally in America, we've just not caught on. We send kids from high school straight into college without pause, imagining that somehow the freshman dorm experience is going to be one's orientation to the world. And so exactly as you're saying, seizing on this very unique window of opportunity to help a young person connect across, uh, uh, you know, difference with, with young people they wouldn't have otherwise met is an advantage to them and to the world for the rest of their lives. 
I love that. That's a a great spot to leave it, Abby. I want to thank you for coming on the show today and telling us more about Global Citizen Year. And if our listeners want to find out more about the program, where should they go to to look for information about applying or or just learning more about uh, Global Citizen Year? At our website, globalcitizenyear.org, you'll see all kinds of information about the program experience, testimonials from our alums, uh, blogs and writing from our fellows, so they're doing active reflection from the field, as well as information about our upcoming application deadlines for our 2020 cohort. Awesome. I love it. Uh, thanks again, Abby. This has been really great. I wish we could talk for the full hour, um, but we've got, we've got to go to a break. Um, so thanks again for coming on. Thank you so much. It's been my pleasure. Bye. Bye. All right, folks, when we come back, we'll be talking about how to approach a a different kind of deferral, which is a deferral decision that comes from schools. Don't go away. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Beauty is always a reflection of how we are taking care of ourselves from the inside, and our business is no different. Building your business brand is a direct reflection of you. In today's competitive landscape, personal and proven leadership skills can ensure that our brands and businesses succeed. Join host Bonnie Bonadeo and visionary guest experts to help you find success. Tune into beautiful brands inside and out every Thursday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time and 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1 866 472 5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. 
All right, folks, welcome back to the show. Uh, that was a really great segment on gap years. And, and you know, students can defer admission for a gap year, but we're going to talk now about a different kind of deferral. And that's one that comes from admission offices themselves when you apply early. Joining me to help with that conversation is my colleague and the producer of the show, uh, Lauren Randall. Hey, Lauren, how's it going? Hey, Ian, doing great. Thanks. So usually you get to be behind the scenes. Uh, today you're front and center. Um, it's uh, almost 11:15. A lot of students have submitted early applications, early action, early decision. Um, let's just start with what happens next. Those apps get submitted. What's the next step uh, for students in terms of hearing back from colleges? Sure. Well, congratulations for those students who did get those applications in yeah, early. Way to go. Um, in terms of what to, yeah, exactly. In terms of what to expect next, it's a pretty quick turnaround. So already we're talking about decisions coming back. Um, typically, students can expect decisions around mid-December. Now, that can differ for different schools. Some can be as late as uh, end of January, but generally it's, it's around mid-December. You're going to hear something back from the college if you applied early action or early decision. Um, and you can get one of three responses back. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can be admitted, and that is awesome. If you're admitted early decision, that's where you're going. Um, If you're admitted early action, you don't need to commit anywhere until May 1st, so you have some time to digest it and think it through. Um, You can be rejected from an early round, and that is the end of the line. You you can't reapply. That's it for that school in this admission cycle. Or you can be deferred, and that's really what I want to focus on um, because it's not an acceptance and it's not a rejection. It's a... It's a rollover. Can you, maybe you can't do this, but I'm going to ask the question anyway. It's very easy to see how you would feel about an acceptance, and it's easy to see how you would feel about being rejected. How should you feel about being deferred? What should a student take away from that decision arriving in their inbox? Sure. And I think that this is a confusing question to answer or how to feel about it, because it's not necessarily... Uh, it wasn't necessarily an indicator of how your application fared. So what I mean by that is that some colleges defer everyone. So mm-hmm. if, if you're not admitted, you're automatically deferred. I worked at a school, Georgetown University, um, did not reject anyone from early action. They deferred everyone. So uh, to be honest, students didn't really feel anything about that. That's just their policy. Um, other schools defer very few students, so that really is an indicator that you were competitive. Um, you just didn't make that first-round cut. They want to reconsider you in the context of the full applicant pool. So there's a bit of nuance to how you should feel. It really depends on the institutional practices um, and how they uh, send out deferrals. Yeah, and and I going in on those institutional practices, I, I want to sort of because Georgetown deferred everyone at at Reed, we didn't defer everyone. We did deny some students in uh, the early decision pool when I was there. Um, so what a deferral indicated from our point of view was we need more information. And the Mm -hmm. more information that we need really comes in two different categories. We need more information about the quality of our applicant pool as a whole, 
because this student isn't clearly standing out to the point that they can be admitted. So we got to see sort of what the regular pool of applicants is going to look like. Or we need more information about this student. Maybe we need uh, fall grades. Maybe we need another letter of recommendation. Maybe there's a demonstration of interest that is missing at this point. It's Colleges are never mm-hmm. going to write you and tell you what that is, um, but often they need more info, and that's the catalyst for making that deferral decision. Um, so you had mentioned in sort of our prep for this that some colleges do suggest follow-up items, some don't. How, how can students sort of navigate that thinking about what to submit after they've been deferred? Sure. So if a student's deferred, the first thing that they know that they need to think about is what's required at every school that I can possibly think of. I don't think that there's any exception here. They must send in their first semester grades. That's required for any school that you've been deferred um, from or that or that you've been admitted to. You must send in, um, as a counselor from your high school, must send in a mid-year school report um, that, that constitutes the first semester grades, the first two quarters. So that's really, and that's, you know, I think that's a good reason why we're talking about this now, um, even though it might be a little bit early to think about a deferral. It's not too early to think about what your semester grades look like. Um, there is midterms coming up. So that's going to be a big part of the regular decision review of, of what did the first half of your senior year look like. So that's going to go everywhere. That is required. Um, so that's, I, I would say, front and center. Yeah, there were Otherwise, cases. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to follow up on that real, real quickly. There were cases where a student's semester grades would come into us and it would make the decision for us both in the affirmative sure. and the negative. So we might get all ab- A's ab- in the fall absolutely. of senior year, and it's like, you're in. Or we might see a couple C's, and we're saying, okay, you're out. So those fall grades could be all a college needs to make that decision. Sorry to interrupt. Continue. Yeah, it's a big part. No, no, that, it's a really big part of the regular decision review. Um, because there really isn't all that much more that you can update the college with. So some colleges might ask for a specific follow-up. They could say um, if you you can respond to a short prompt with some more writing, they might say feel free to submit an extra letter of recommendation. Um, you need to be, if they ask for something, my goodness, do it. Uh, they're giving you that opportunity to, to add to your file. Um, it's not going to be a lot. You're not resubmitting an application. You're not sending in five new recommendations and five new essays. So really look to see what they are what they are requesting. Um, but I would say that's really not the norm. Most just kind of leave it open-ended of, of you've yeah. been deferred, um, and now that's in, in your hands. I, I will also say that there could be times that a college specifically says, do not send us anything. We don't right. want more essays. We don't want letters of recommendation. Don't come knocking on our door begging and pleading. We just want your grades. And you need to listen to that as well. Yeah, Michigan comes to mind for me. I think that there's a line in their defer letter that says something like, the most successful applicants send us only what we require. <laughs> it's like very much mm-hmm. like, do not do this. Um, I think also there's not an open invitation to just bury the admission office in extra materials. Don't send five extra essays and three letters of recommendation. Bingo. Be really judicious about what you're choosing to send um, and send only the best stuff. And how would you sort of zero in on what the best stuff actually looks like in this context, Lauren? Sure. 
Sure. Um, well, again, it, it depends on what they're asking for. Um, but uh, we get a lot of questions about, should I rewrite my essay? And I don't think I've ever, ever advised the student to rewrite their, their main personal statement. I Either. think, you know, students should have spent a lot of time and energy and thoughtfulness in that. Um, and to rush something off, I, I don't think it bodes well. Um, so let that information stand on its own. But if there's a specific prompt that the college asks to respond to, um, go for it. But I would say the norm, uh, what, what is more times than not, students sending grades and then something along the lines of a, an update letter, a love letter, a, a, a letter of continued interest, um, and since I've applied, this is what you need to know type of deal. Um, it is short and sweet. Again, we're not looking for for a 10-page essay. You're not looking to, to overload them. Um, but an update is appropriate um, if, if the college allows for that. I think it's really important to, to highlight those academic achievements um, or just factors. Maybe it's an, uh, that intellectual spark, that uh, uh, cool class that you're taking that fall semester you want to highlight and how that connects to your academic plans or goals for college. I love that. You know, that's, that's what it's all about. So maybe an update academically, maybe an update um, in terms of the students' activities or achievements or just the highlights from senior year so far, how they're making their mark as a senior. I think that that's relevant information. Um, but it really is a tight window here. If they applied November 1st, there probably isn't loads and loads to update in the next couple of months. Um, mm-hmm. So I do think that this is the time to also... Uh, make a statement of interest. If this school is hands down your first choice, remains your first choice, by all means say so. Um, or if you say you're, you are undeterred from the deferral, that, uh, say it. Um, right. you know, these are, it, 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 it feels good for admissions officer to know, um, that, that you're still interested in the college. So I think that that's appropriate. Um, and in terms of timing, I would say usually this should this should be sent after the new year. So sometime in mid to late January, sending it the day after you deferred, uh, it probably gets lost in the shuffle or, you know, there might be some uh, tears in, in that right. response. You want to go into it with confidence, give yourself a little space and send it in January. That's right. And I definitely, I, I, I want to echo, echo the importance of, of demonstrating this interest by sending something. There were a number of students in my career at Reed who were deferred, who I really liked, but they couldn't get in, you know, in that round for what, one reason or another. And if they didn't send any information, that basically sealed their fate um, because we needed to know that they were still as interested as they were when they applied early decision. So I think it's really important, um, even if it's as simple as talking to your high school counselor, keep them looped in so that if they're having conversations with colleges, they can say, oh yeah, I know Lauren's still really interested. Um, Those things I think can be really, really helpful. Um, So, you know, great point. Yeah, so so there are a lot of different people that you can take advantage of or that you can use to your advantage in this process as well. Um, one final question I wanted to ask, Lauren, what about visiting um, after being deferred? Do you think that that's a good idea, bad idea, sort of neutral? What's, what is your thinking on that front? I have, a tough, I have a tough time with this one because, first of all, not every college is transparent about whether or not they're tracking that kind of interest. If the college says, we, uh, so for, let's go, I'll use Georgetown, for example. We did not track interest 
And it just honestly made me sad when students showed up to to kind of plead their case in person. Um, It it was not going to make an impact. And I really thought that the students should spend time, you know, thinking about their regular decision list. Um, They'd already been there once uh, before. So I didn't really think that that helped in that context. It kind of made me feel bad a little bit for the student. Um, If the institution does track demonstrative interest and you haven't been, then I definitely would would try to make that trip if if it's feasible. Um, so I think yes. it depends on the context a little bit, but if it at the end of the day, if it hurts you emotionally to go there and say, "Oh, this place didn't want me yet. What am I going? I can't think about any other school." Don't do it. You need to be thinking about your regular decision list, and you can still, you know, be excited and express interest for that school, but you, you can't make it. Uh, you know, you can't pitch a tent and say, I'm not leaving this campus That's until right. you admit me sort of thing. <laughs> Please don't do that. You don't want to be in a position where you're confronting an admission officer to say, why was I deferred? Right. You can say, hey, I'm here. I'm visiting. I was exactly. deferred. I really enjoyed my visit. It's great to meet you. But you want to sort of tread lightly in that context. Um, Lauren, I want to thank you. That's great info for families. I think we'll have a lot more conversations about how these early decisions sort of go. But I want to thank you for, for this one and, and coming on to share with us. Thank you, Ian. All right, great. Now, before we take our next break, I want to take just a minute to talk to you about Audible. Uh, You may have heard about Audible. I I certainly know a lot about it already. Uh, Audible has the world's largest selection of audiobooks and audio entertainment. And you can start today with a 30-day Audible trial. You just go to audible.com slash college coach, or you can text college coach, all one word, to 500-500. Audible is a great resource. And, you know, these days we spend a lot of time in our cars, maybe at the gym. I've always got something attached to my ears. And why not have that be a great book? We have a really wonderful reading list here at College Coach. I hear so many terrific recommendations from my our, my colleagues, uh, like Eleanor Oliphant is Completely Fine and Educated by Tara Westover. You can get one book per month with an Audible membership. And you can listen to that book, whether you're driving in traffic, whether you're on the light rail or the bus on your way to work. It's a great way to get the content that you might not have an opportunity to sit down and read um, you know, by yourself on the couch at home. These days, we're really, really busy, and it's terrific to have Audible as a resource for us. So again, the website is audible.com slash college coach for a 30-day no obligation trial of Audible. You've got one audiobook per month, two Audible originals from a fresh selection. You've got great updates from the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, Washington Post. It's a wonderful resource to get a lot of terrific content that's produced just for Audible or books in audio format. So again, audible.com slash college coach for a 30-day trial. We'll be right back. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can. 
about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says, yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Are you ready for a broad look at everything to do with the world of sports? If so, tune in to the Mike Abadir Show. It's a unique perspective to the connections between sports and business. Host Mike Abadir has negotiated numerous deals in the NFL. Along with co-host Gino Bacola, Mike will bring his expertise, discussion, and some terrific guests to the airwaves. Listen live for the Mike Abadir Show every Thursday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at blog.voiceamerica.com. That's blog.voiceamerica.com. The Voice America Press Blog. All access, all the time. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. All right, folks, welcome back to the show. I feel like we've been flying through our segments today with so much great content to discuss Uh, And now we get to turn our attention over to college finance with our college finance expert, Jean Mahan. Hey, Jean, welcome back to the show. Hi, Ian. Thanks for having me today. Glad to have you. So a lot of what we talked about so far on the show is about looking ahead and planning ahead. We talked about the gap year. We talked about defer decisions and what to do about them. And now we're talking a little bit about what happens when that grace period ends and it's time to start repaying those student loans. Now, for those of us that are not especially sure of what that grace period is, can you define that for our listeners so that they know a little bit more about the concept of a grace period? Sure, I'm happy to. So the grace period is the six-month period following either graduation or when the borrower drops below half-time status. Usually half-time status is at least two um, courses. So if the student, let's say, has graduated in May, six months later, the grace period, which is the time when no payments are due on their student loans, um, when that ends... Usually, your first payment is due within about 45 days after the grace period ending. So, if you graduated on May 15th, your grace period will end November 15th, and your first payment will likely be due right after the first of the year. So, I can imagine that that is a scenario that can be a little bit stressful, and and maybe a student says, oh my gosh, what did I do something wrong? But this is a normal sort of process for student loans for a grace period to end and for the payments to start. Is that right? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. 
There are a few federal loans that have, usually the health professions loans that have a longer grace period, nine or 12 months. Um, but for the most, most students who have federal direct loans, their grace period starts six months after the, the um, is, grace period, six months after graduation or when the grace period ends. Is there any way to extend a grace period or does it it's attach the loan um, based on the definition of the loan? So with federal loans, what a borrower might be able to do is extend it uh, depending on the circumstances. So if the borrower has any subsidized loans, they may want to ask their servicer about um, perhaps an economic hardship deferment or an unemployment deferment if they're you know suffering from a real severe economic hardship. Any student can qualify for what's called forbearance. But borrowers need to be careful with that because subsidized loans, which during periods of deferment have the interest paid, do not have paid interest during the forbearance. So it can be somewhat costly because at the end of every period of forbearance, which is usually about a year, um, unpaid interest is added to the principal balance. So your loan is actually growing during that period. You're not required to make payments or you may be required to make interest-only payments. Um, it's not reported negatively on your credit history, and that's a good thing. So if somebody really feels they need that, you know, extension, then then take it rather than, you know, missing payments and possibly getting it getting into a delinquency situation or even a default. Gotcha. That makes sense. Um, let's let's imagine for most borrowers, they're they're in a good position. Let's let's be optimistic about this. They've uh-huh. they've gotten a job, and you know they're getting ready because it's the end of this grace period. Now it's starting time to start paying. So, what are some things that they need to know in advance of the first loan payment being due? Okay. Um, so they want to make sure that they've kept track of all their loans. And if they're federal loans, the best place to find that information is on the National Student Loan Data System website. It's nslds.ed.gov. Um, they can find a list of all their loans with the current servicer, which is really the most important piece of this because that's where you're going to be making your payments to the servicer. If this, the borrower has any private loans, they can pull a copy of their credit report and find that information on there. And, you know, if, if all, if worse comes to worse, they can always call the financial aid office at their school for some help in just gathering all that information together. So that's the first thing you want to do. You want to set up online accounts with your loan servicer. You want to make sure that they've got all your current information, your mailing address, your email address, and your phone number. I find that you know, a lot of students, when they're doing exit counseling right at the end of school, they'll put down their college email address, and yet they're no longer using that. So they're missing really important updates from their servicers. So make sure you've got all your information current on there. Um, and then think about whether the repayment plan you chose when you did exit counseling is the one that's going to work for you today. Uh, again, I think sometimes before students have a job or they know what their living situation is going to be, they just kind of randomly choose the standard repayment plan. And maybe that's not the right plan for you right now. Maybe you need an income-dependent repayment plan. Maybe you need an extended plan. So working with your servicer to see what's going to work best for you um, you know, going forward so that these payments are manageable. 
Uh, and I always encourage yeah. borrowers to set up auto payment with their loan servicer. That Wonder way, the that. servicer will give you an interest rate reduction of 0.25%. You know, it doesn't sound like a lot, but every little bit helps. Yeah. And those payments are going to be pulled out automatically every month. So you never have to worry about forgetting to send a check or forgetting to schedule that payment with your own bank. So that's something else that can be done, you know, right now in the time leading up to your first payment. Yeah, I think that that's that's a really great piece of advice, and I think it's it's helpful, obviously, to have other payments that are set up for auto pay. But this seems like one that's especially important to make sure that you're keeping on top of it. And and if for some reason you can be, you know, forgetful or you tend to miss deadlines, it's a good idea to make sure that this is regularly scheduled, um, so you don't have mm-hmm. to suffer any kind of penalty there. Now, what about sort of due dates? So, I mean, what are we looking at in terms of when those payments are going to be due, um, what are people, what, what should students sort of expect um, for the timing of that? So, you know, each servicer will set up the due date themselves. One of the benefits, the additional benefits of having auto pay is that oftentimes the servicer will give you a choice of deadlines. So you could choose from one of four or five dates that they do auto pay you know, auto pull from accounts each month. So maybe, you know, you don't get paid on the first of the month and your payment is due and that's not the best time for you to have your payment withdrawn. Maybe you can, you know, work with your servicer to have that withdrawn on the 15th of the month when you've got more cash in your account and that kind of thing. Um, Some people like to standardize their payments. So they might have loans that go into repayment nine or 12 months. Those you know, health professions loans. So sometimes a borrower will work with their servicer to say, I'd rather have everything going to repayment at once. So can I do a forbearance for the next few months until everything goes into repayment? So again, forbearance a little more costly, but um, if you're trying to get everything, in, you know, pulled out at one time, that's a way you could do it. Now, you had mentioned something, um, I think, offline about paying interest versus principal or, you know, do you have a choice uh-huh. over what your payment goes to uh, or is it just a total dollar amount it goes in and then the servicer decides where it's being allocated? Right. So most servicers are servicing multiple loans for a borrower. So a, a borrower who borrowed four years of direct loans probably has as many as eight separate loans, but they're with one servicer. They're only required to make one payment. The servicer determines what the monthly payment is for each loan and then says, okay, by the way, your payment is $300 a month, and they'll divvy that up amongst the loans. However, if you want to make an additional payment, you can certainly do that. And I usually recommend that borrowers do that on the same day that their payment is withdrawn. On that day, everything is satisfied, interest and principal. So an additional payment, say you're making an additional $100 payment, you might say, please apply that to loan number six. That might have your highest interest rate and you're working to pay that one down faster. And so you're going to get the most bang for your buck on that day. Now, if you do it a few weeks into the month, you just have to understand that interest has accrued during that two-week period, say, and that of your additional payment, it will first go to um, satisfy any accrued interest, and then the rest will be applied to your uh, the principal balance of the loan you choose. I do tell borrowers that this is like a little bit of babysitting. It's not always super easy. Not every um, servicer has the link on their on their um, site to make this go directly to the the loan that you wanted to. So I always suggest that you call the the, um, servicer and say, how can I best make this payment so that it's going directly? 
What you really want to avoid is if you don't say anything and you're just making an additional payment, that gives the servicer kind of carte blanche to do whatever they want with that loan. They could spread it amongst all the loans that you have, so it's really not having the biggest impact. Or what I've seen happen often is they'll advance your um, payment date. So they might say, oh, you know, you're paid ahead now. You don't have to make a payment for one month, two months, or however long it is. And that sounds really exciting, doesn't it? Wow, no payment this month. That's great. But if you're trying to reduce your term and pay less interest, that's not helpful. So, you know, you may have to babysit your loan a little bit, work with your servicer until they're used to, you know, what you're doing with this. Or if, you're, if your servicer has the additional um, link on their, on their site to say, I'm making an additional payment, I want it applied to, you know, the XYZ loan here. So it's always important to really be on top of what your servicer is doing with your payments, especially if you're trying to pay off faster. That makes sense. You know, every time, Gene, that I have you on or one of our colleagues on the finance team, it, it, it almost seems like, I mean, there's so much information that's out there. And for those of our listeners who have an opportunity to stumble upon one of our finance segments, it's really helpful because they get a ton of information about loans. But, you know, in between sort of these times when they get to hear from you and, and your colleagues, um, where can they go to get help? Where where can they go to get information about this? I would imagine that servicers are not trying to be especially helpful. Um, they may not be trying not to be helpful. But what's a good resource to to get information like the stuff that you're giving us on this show? Yeah, that's a great question because I know I've spoken to borrowers, you know, friends who have who are going through this process and are totally confused. And I think the, a good website is studentaid.gov. It's a federal government website that really talks about the whole student financial aid process from start to finish, but they do have a really comprehensive section on loan repayment, and it talks about all kinds of things, the different repayment plans. It explains them all and which loans are eligible and how you access this information. It talks about forgiveness programs, both for teachers and other public servants. Um, It talks about what to do if you're in trouble. Are you delinquent? Or, you know, hopefully you're not in default, but it explains step-by-step how to rectify that that issue. So I think it's a really good website. It has a calculator, so you can go on there and, um, you know, estimate your payments. Another website um, that borrowers can access and, ha- and they should have an account on is studentloans.gov. And the reason I like that site is because there's a calculator built in there that will import all your loans into their calculator and then show you which payment, um, which prepayment plans you're eligible for and what your estimated monthly payments would be under those plans. So that can be really helpful, you know, if you're trying to create a budget and figure out what can I afford, you know, is this 10-year standard best for me or should I be thinking more of an income-dependent plan? That calculator can give you some real hard numbers so that you can figure out what's going to work for you. That's great. Great advice. And I I think it's always helpful to know what those resources are that are out there that we can take advantage of, even when we're not tuned into the podcast. Um, Gene, in the last 30 seconds that we have here, are there any final tips that you would make to to students who are going to begin payments uh, quite soon? Sure. 
Um, I think one of the biggest ones is a lot, there's a lot of kind of scammy stuff out there. You know, there's companies that say, well, we can re- renegotiate your loan term for you so that you can pay less, or we can get this canceled for you or forgiven, and all you have to do is pay us X number of dollars. You know, they can't do anything for you that you can't do for yourself for free. And mm-hmm. most of the time, they're not doing things that are going to be particularly helpful for you. So if you have any concerns about your loans, really contact your loan servicer immediately or call the financial aid office at your school and ask for help. Most Mm -hmm. financial aid um, counselors have, you know, an understanding of the loan programs and kind of work with, can kind of work with you to direct you towards the best resources, but don't wait. If you think you can't make your payment this month, you can't make a double payment next month. Get on the phone, contact your servicer, find out what options are available to you. Use that studentaid.gov site to look at all the different types of, of um, repayment plans and ways to, you know, forbear your loans for a certain period of time. Um, you can do it, and it's a little bit confusing at first, but these are your loans, and you don't want anyone taking advantage of you. Exactly. That's great advice, Jean. Thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing that with uh, all oh, of our listeners. Welcome. Awesome. Great. That brings us to the end of another terrific show. I want to thank Abby and Lauren and Jean for all their expertise today and remind you that you can find older episodes of Getting In in the archives on voiceamerica.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Next week, we're back with another brand new episode where we'll be answering your questions on the air and talking through the essay supplements for both the University of Oregon and the University of Maryland. Until next week, get those apps in with an 11-15 deadline. Looking at you, University of Washington. And good luck with the last half of November. Have a great day. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Mm